we are continuing our series here on uh, what is called uh, wokeness or critical race theory, those kinds of things. And uh, we are coming closer to the end. We got, counting this week, I think we have three more Sundays because mm-hmm. we have uh, and then the last Sunday of March, we will be switching to a Providence series, a series on God's Providence, which we're going to actually combine our Sunday school classes, the adult classes for uh, that series, which will, we believe, we're trying to sketch it out, but it should carry us through to the end of the summer, the Providence series. And um, we will look at, for that series, we will spend the first half or so looking at God's Providence through several different topics, like His Providence over nature and nations and life and death and uh, various issues. And then we're going to do something we've never done before quite like this, but we're going to do a series on, this will be our summer Sunday school series, will be, we've never done this, but on the, the tulip of Reformed theology. So we're, we're going to deal with the God's providence through the lens of conversion, and we will look at the T-U-L-I-P as it's been sort of known as throughout the last few hundred years, and we will break those down about two weeks per letter, and that's the plan for the summer Sunday school series. And there's a lot of misunderstandings with the tulip, and we want to kind of break down what, what it means, what it doesn't mean, uh, and, and try to give a biblical perspective on that. Greg, are you, can you pray for us? And then we, yes. we uh, once again, we're dealing with, uh, man, these, these are, these are uh, important, but, but certainly they can, they can lean toward contentious issues. We don't want to be contentious, but the, the issue of reparations, which yeah. is uh, where we've gotten to this week, and we're going to be dealing with a book on the issue and also Kevin DeYoung's uh, essay response, criti- critical response to the book, and we're going to look at some passages of Scripture and some video clips and uh, yeah, a lot to cover. Can you pray for us? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for another opportunity to gather together to study Your Word uh, and consider, Lord, the culture we live in uh, in light of it. God, there's some really bad ways of thinking out there that as believers we need to be very careful of. We need to be very cautious. Uh, we need to, to be on our guard. And I pray, Lord, that as we discuss this issue of reparations today, that you will equip us to be on our guard. Um, Lord, to think about this issue biblically and to not be easily swayed um, by those who are arguing for reparations, even when they quote Scripture. Lord, help us uh, show that the way Scripture is used to support that is erroneous, um, that Scripture actually goes in a different direction. So please help us in that. Lord, help us be humble and yet firm and unyielding in the truth. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I, I feel every few weeks I need to sort of repeat a common theme that runs through these Sundays. So a couple things. <clears throat> Number one, question that may come up is why are we talking about this in a Sunday school class? Uh, that question may come up in your mind. This seems pretty far away from just a walking through the book of Romans or something like that, which is absolutely a wonderful and necessary thing to do as well. The reason why we're spending so many weeks on both the LGBT uh, movement, which we did really last fall, and now through critical theory, critical race theory, is because these are the two areas in which I believe uh, a false worldview is coming into the church. These are the two biggest areas where a false worldview is coming into the church, and it is most, it tends to be uh, most evident among younger people. So, So the younger we are, uh, the, the more susceptible we tend to be to this because we're hearing it more as we grow up and develop. And so we believe that since these are two of the biggest threats to the Christian faith in our generation, we need to spend extended time talking about those things. The other thing that I want to keep mentioning is this. We oppose what the Bible defines as true racism, which is discriminating against someone, showing favoritism towards someone based on their ethnicity or skin color. We believe that that is an abomination. We believe that that is evil, that is wicked, to show favoritism to someone because of their skin color or to hate someone because of the color of their skin is truly evil. And we are not denying that in our nation's history, there has been gross uh, sin in this area. Nothing we are saying is minimizing that. If you look back on previous weeks, we have talked about past racism in our country from from pre-Civil War to Jim Crow to on and on. So so we're not denying that. What we're trying to say is what is true racism, biblically defined, is not the same thing as what our culture today is labeling critical race theory. These are not the same thing. So what's happening is what is not actual racism is being labeled as racism and white supremacy, and then that's being used really to, this sounds so strange, it ends up becoming a kind of racism itself because it ends up having almost a reverse discrimination perspective. So uh, any other opening thoughts, just uh, clarifications, things we need to maybe keep saying as we go forward here? Just briefly, uh, we want to make sure not just that we use the Bible in this issue, but that we use the Bible rightly. 
I think that's, that's one of the, the most important things we can get a, a handle on is because folks, especially in the church, they'll grab Scripture and they'll say, see, Scripture supports what we're talking about. But when you actually examine texts in their context, it doesn't support what they're saying. And I think that's what we're going to see today, especially with this issue of reparations, is they know that the church won't buy into this if it's not scripturally based. And so the folks who in, the, in, in the church who are espousing these kinds of things, well, they have to find scripture supposedly that will, well, if, if we talk about this, see, it's there in the Bible. Well, Satan can misquote scripture too, and that doesn't mean we go along with it. We evaluate things in their context, and if it does not say what they say it says, and if it does not lead us to what they say it leads us to, then we reject it. It's just that simple. Um, and so we've got to let Scripture in its context determine what it's saying. We can't take an idea from the culture and say, well, it sounds really good. Maybe I can make a Bible verse or passage or two or three fit that. See, it seems on a surface level to be talking about. the No, surface level is not acceptable with this. We have to go into the text. We don't want to just hover over it. We want to go down into the text and ask and, and, and interrogate the text, ask the text questions in its context and see what it's actually saying. And I think when we do that, we see this whole social justice and critical race theory, specifically reparations. It does not hold up with what the Bible actually teaches. Yes. So some of these clips I know are a little bit crazy to watch, but th this is from Disney targeting, I mean, it's obviously aimed at younger children. Uh, this is from an animated series, a newer one that Disney put out recently. You may have already seen this clip. It went viral a couple of weeks ago. And again, as we watch this clip, we're not saying that every single statement in this clip is factually inaccurate. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is two things. Number one is, is the framing of the conversation correct? Is the way of framing it correct? And number two, are the conclusions that are being drawn accurate? You understand, you can say things that are actually partially true, frame them wrongly, and then draw false conclusions. That can lead you in a terribly destructive direction. So this is, again, made for younger people, made by Disney. This just came out. And uh, listen to the words and see if there's any troubling inferences from this clip. This country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Tilled this land from sea to sea to sea. First there was rice, tobacco, sugar cane. Then Whitney did his thing and cotton became king. And we were its soldiers. Four million strong. Fighting for America's freedoms, even though we remained America's slaves. slaves. Built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build this. Slaves, slaves built this country. And we, the descendants of slaves in America, have earned reparations for their suffering. And continue to earn reparations. Okay, now, I'm going to stop it in the middle of this already. So already there's a, there's a couple things here that, that we could ask some questions about. Number one would be, if we're going to frame it the way of saying slaves built the country of America, I could argue that slaves built a lot of countries in a lot of parts of the world. And therefore, reparations would be demanded where? Anywhere that there has ever been slavery in the history of mankind. And if we're actually going to give reparations to anyone who has an enslaved ancestor then we're going to be paying ourselves money because we have ancestors on both sides. If you look at the, like the world of slavery and the, 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 the blight that it's been on the human race, I mean, you look back over history, first of all, how would we know who exactly is descended from slaves and who hasn't? But even if you could, you would have about half the world paying about half the world uh, reparations of some kind, and how would you ever parse that out? How would you ever figure that out? You, it would take God at the final judgment to figure out all of that. And secondly, and these are all things we're going to get to as we go, but am I guilty for the crime of my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? Am I guilty for my great-great-great-great-grandfather's crime? And if so, am I supposed to pay justice to the great-great-great-great-grandson of someone that my ancestor wronged? Is that even a biblical way of framing justice? You understand? These are the kinds of issues we need to think about. Let's keep going. Every moment we spend submerged in the systemic prejudice, racism, and white, white supremacy, supremacy that America was founded with and still has not atoned for. Slaves built this country. Not only field hands, but carpenters, masons, blacksmiths, musicians. Now, I just got to pause here again. The language of atonement is being used. That's interesting. We've already said that wokeness tends toward religious language. Mm -hmm. It speaks of white supremacy as the original sin. It speaks of conversion as becoming woke. That's the new birth when you wake up to reality as it is. And then the, the true sin is white supremacy. And then you have to atone for the sin of white supremacy. And you do that through paying for that sin through reparations. Does this sound like a religious system? It does. But the problem is if I'm paying for the sins, 
atonement never actually, we never arrive at full payment for, for sin in, in this system. Inventors build cities from Jamestown to New Orleans to Bannacan. Washington. 40 acres and a mule. We'll take the 40 acres, keep the mule. We, we made, made your, your families, families rich. From the southern plantation heirs. To the northern bankers. To the New England ship owners. The founding fathers. Former presidents. Current senators. The Illuminati, the New World Order. Slaves built, built this country. country. We had Tubman. Turner. Frederick D. Didn't they say Lincoln freed the slaves? But slaves were men. And women. And only we can free ourselves. Emancipation is not freedom. Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, public schools, feeding private prisons, where we become slaves again. As we celebrate Juneteenth for, for the umpteenth time, our account is still outstanding. Cause this country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. And we demand our 40 acres and a mule. You can keep the mule. Keep the 40. We're taking our freedom. Now, again, this, this is made by Disney for children. And if you don't think that there's indoctrination going on in this video, I mean, I, I don't know what to even say. This is so obviously a kind of trying to convert children to a certain worldview, a certain view of both history and the, and the present. And there are so many problems with how this is framed. I mean, there, there's a way to appropriately address these issues of, mm -hmm. from our past. This is not it. This is, not, this is going to create a, a, a new generation that is going to be poisoned from this kind of stuff, and it's going to change their thinking. So just reflections on think, people like Disney uh, sending this out to, to children. Um, it's not going to be necessarily related to the reparations issue. I mean, it is. Um, but there's also a mindset out there that says parents are not the ones who should raise their children. It's the state that should and the state schools, um, public schools and all that. Like they're, And if you just pay attention to the news, you see this more and more. It's They want to take rights away from parents, freedoms away from parents. I mean, the whole trans thing with, you know, trying to do this without parental notification and everything like that. Um and I'm, what I'm, where I'm going with that is, you, you mentioned it, that this is indoctrination. The very, these very same people would tell us, you have no right to indoctrinate your children, to teach your children to believe a certain way. Why do they say that? Because they want to teach your children their way. It's not that they're against indoctrination in general. They're against a particular form of indoctrination. And indoctrination is simply teaching It's simply teaching things it's like as catechizing true. a child. Catechizing, teaching them as true. Um, and so there is an agenda afoot to take your rights away as parents and grandparents from having any influence over your children because they think they know better. Um, so, and they're succeeding in many ways in the public schools, which is heartbreaking um, to see. And again, going back to what Mark says, there's, there's, a lot, there's truth in that in terms of historical specifics. It's the framing of it that matters. And when you assume something at the outset... You see it everywhere. When you just assume something's true, you see it everywhere. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to give evidence for it. You don't have to root it in facts and in reality. You can just assume it and therefore say it's everywhere. Again, going back to what we've said, is the, the treatment of black people in our country's history atrocious and appalling? Yes, it should grieve us. But they assume that racism is inherent to the system that we live in, in our system of government, our law enforcement. They assume that into the system. And what did we say before? You can have a sound system that is abused and misused. Um, and the reason why, at least one way, is we talked about with the disparities and, and, and stuff like that and how you know, up until 1960, you know, you'd seen such progress in the black community from where they were, you know, under slavery and all that. They were still like in terms of upward mobility, they were the, the black community in general was going up. Um, and what does that tell you? They were working with the system that everybody says is rigged against black people. And they were overcoming poverty. They were overcoming so many things. And it's when the system changed with the LBJ and the Great Society that it stopped. And then it started going back down. So if there's an aspect of the system that's rigged, there's an aspect that's racist, it's actually the welfare state, if we want to be honest about it. It and actually is that. Just this week, because I didn't feel like I said enough about this last Sunday, 
I did a podcast on Tuesday just sort of by myself, and uh, take it for what it's worth, but I talked about the discrimination and disparities thing for about an hour or so, and one of the things I talked about was this very point, and it's interesting that in the black population after the Civil War, literacy rates went from near zero, I mean, very low literacy, to about 50% of the population by the turn of the century, by the year 1900, which is something we've never hardly seen in any ethnic group at any point in history. To go from negligible literacy to 50% in about 35 years was almost miraculous, an amazing turn. And then between the year 1940 and 1960, uh, black poverty dropped by 40%. Between 1940 and 1960, that's a tiny period of time. Mm -hmm. Black poverty dropped by 40%. So there was real advancement going on in the black community. And then, like you were mentioning, when, when Medicare and Medicaid passed through in the 1965, uh, basically single motherhood was receiving more income than married individuals, right? And so there was, there was, this, there was this extra money going to single motherhood, which anything the government throws money at, you're going to get more of, right? And so I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it's right. certainly an important factor along with the sexual revolution, where you had a lot of single motherhood take off in the 60s, and that skyrocketed in the black community. And again, this, this, is, a, this is a thing that makes you want to weep, but in the black community, going into 1960, uh, somewhere in the 20-something percent of the households had two-parent homes. 20-something uh, percent. There's 28 percent or something. I, I got that backwards. 78. 78 I got yeah. it backwards. 78 percent. And within just uh, 35 years, uh, it had flip-flopped and it had reversed. And so th th you can clearly see the sexual revolution and uh, Medicare, Medicaid, those kinds of things were major contributing factors to what, what ended up becoming, frankly, fatherlessness in, in a lot of impoverished communities. And as anybody will tell you, this is a tragedy uh, it's true of white Americans, it's true of black Americans, Hispanic Americans, it doesn't matter. It, it, just in, speaking in generalities, children who grow up, boys who grow up without a father in the home, they are, and you know the statistics, far more likely to do drugs, far more likely to commit felonies, far more likely, I think it's 20 times more likely to go to jail. And, and so you see here in, in our history a lot of heartbreaking things that have affected all uh, uh, Americans. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's been a, a, a disproportionate impact on the black community. I talk about some on that podcast. Let me show you here where this is showing up amongst, again, evangelical leaders that I used to endorse. I keep mentioning Thabiti Anyabwile here. Thabiti was a guy, again, I would, have, I would have given you one of his books 10 years ago had I met you. I would have recommended him to you 10 years ago. I really liked Thabiti Anyabwile. And uh, now, uh, I mean, you can see in his, behind him on the bookshelf is Woke Church. He's got Ibram X. Kendi's book, Stand from the Beginning. He's got all these woke books behind him on the bookshelf, and he's preaching. This is actually during COVID lockdown, I believe. He's preaching uh, via live stream to his church. I want to show you a couple of clips to show you. This is a guy who used to speak it together for the gospel. This guy was a pastor with Mark Dever at, in Washington, D.C., uh, 15 or so years ago, and was a leader in the reform movement. And now listen to the things that, that he's getting at here in his sermon. I'm going to show you two clips. This has been my experience, that, that among such people, there is this desire to exonerate themselves from racial injustice. And I have to say, that's not just Coates' experience, that's my experience too with, with white sons and daughters of Adam. Not all, but way too many. And certain fundamentalist Christians and evangelical Christians are the worst at this. That desire to exonerate themselves of all things racist, of all things racial injustice, it, it tempts them to deny then all things that are racist. The result, again, is that they become indifferent to the black body and the blood of black people spilled in the streets, even when it's caught on camera, even when the eye is telling you that injustice has happened plainly. The heart of indifference must die with every person killed in their homes and every person choked to death on the streets and every little boy playing with a toy gun shot in the park. Indifference must die. In now, now let me just say here, and this goes back to a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. I can promise you, I am not indifferent to these stories. I've shed tears over some of these stories that I've looked at online. I'm not saying that. Here's, here's the notion, though. What he's assuming is that there is a, remember, a systemic targeting of black bodies. That's his assumption. He's saying, why don't you care about the black blood spilled on the ground? I'm saying, I am not indifferent to that. Mm -hmm. I care about that. I really do. I sincerely do. But he just mentioned, remember, a, boy, a black boy in the park with a toy gun. Remember he just mentioned that? We covered that story in here, what, two weeks ago? And remember what I said? When Washington Post did a two-year search on individuals who are killed with toy guns, 
Nearly three times as many white people were killed with toy guns than black people between 2014 and 2016. So I'm not indifferent to any of those stories, and I'm not even saying every single time it's an unjustified shooting because if they have a toy gun and you don't know and they're aiming it at you and you're a police officer, what choice do you have to make in that moment? It's a difficult decision. So I'm not saying that they're all unjustified inherently. I'm simply saying he is assuming that this is massively discriminatory between the two ethnicities, and that uh, is not correct. Reflections, and i got another clip on here um, as well. Well, I mean, again, uh, in light of what we said, we don't have to rehash all that, but we actually looked at the statistics, like you were saying, and that's not representative of a whole big thing that's going on in the country. Mm -hmm. It's just not. Um, and so the only way this kind of mentality keeps gaining ground is we as we don't question it we assume that it's true and that when they say like kids with toy guns when you say it that way you're making an assumption that that's happening a lot of places quite frequently all over the country and it's like that's just not true like there is no reality behind that statement again anytime it happens it's tragic we should weep it should break our hearts but it's not indicative of something that's going on all the time everywhere. The facts say something entirely different. And so the whole emotional force of that, that he's trying to get to, to bring guilt over, well, you don't take racism seriously enough because this is happening everywhere all the time. It's false guilt. It's absolutely false guilt. And we should not take that upon ourselves as a burden that we have to bear if the burden itself isn't based on truth. We just don't do that. God calls us to be a people of the truth. And if we find, if you can, you can show with evidence that, hey, somebody has done wrong or you are in error in this, then we own it. We absolutely own it. But when it's, when it's this kind of blanket statement, this happened everywhere all the time. No, it's not. And so that's just factually inaccurate. And, and what makes this, again, this, this is even more troubling, I think, is the next part of this message. So he's quoting about Cain and Abel, right? Now, you might guess where he's going to go, but just let me read the text here. Remember, Cain says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me shall kill me. Now, listen to what Thabiti says about that text, applying it to this issue. Tell me if you think this is correct. Ain't that something? Did you get that? He just murdered his brother, and God now has given his judgment and he's whining about his judgment. He's complaining the punishment is too much. He wants a light sentence. He's whining that he's been driven from the face of God, but he wasn't living quorum Deo before the face of God. He's worried that someone might do to him what he has just finished doing to Abel. He's not repentant, he's self-pitying. Listen to me. If you listen to the conversations around racial injustice today, you will hear the voice of Cain. Now, be before I play further, this is important because <clears throat> that's a pretty severe accusation to say people who talk the way he's about to say are speaking as Cain. Now, remember, Cain is the archetypal unbeliever in the Bible. In 1 John 3, it says, if you are like Cain, you are not a believer. And if you're like Abel, you're like a believer. So they represent the believer and the unbeliever. So he's about to say, people who say what he's about to say, he calls speaking in the voice of Cain, which is like an unbeliever, quite an accusation because I'm in the category of people he's about to name. So listen to what he's saying. This is the voice of Cain. You will hear people who oppose racial injustice saying, the remedy is way greater than I can bear. How many times you hear that in a conversation about reparations? Oh, that's going to cost too much. You hear people say, we, we can't fix this problem or, or that problem because it's, it's too impractical. And on and on it goes. Beloved, it's just the echo of Cain's voice. It's just the echo of a brother refusing to care for the murdered in the streets. Wow. I mean, I know he says it very calmly, but that is an amazing accusation. He says that if a professing Christian says reparations the way he's talking about is not a good idea, they are speaking with the voice of Cain, the archetypal unbeliever, and that they are, in some sense, culpable for blood on the ground. Now, here's the problem. We all agree Cain deserved the punishment. Cain deserved a far worse punishment, right, than he got. But Cain deserved the punishment he got. But you know why he deserved it? Because he did it. He murdered his brother personally. 
Remember we talked about justice is uh, proportional and truthful. The last one was direct. The person who did the crime is the person who is accountable for the crime. Reparations say the great ancestors of the people who are guilty are accountable for the crime. That is a very different view than biblical justice. So if, if your great, 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 great grandfather murdered Abel, does that mean you have to atone for the sins or pay for the sins yourself? No, that's not correct. The only time that, that would be true in the Bible, just want to be consistent here, is the imputed guilt of Adam. That's the only exception to this. We do believe that we are guilty in Adam. That's original sin. But outside of Adam's original sin, we are not guilty for the particular sins of our ancestors. And to say that we're indifferent to the blood on the ground because of that is not true. I'm almost done. Got a few more seconds of this clip. I want Greg to respond. Pitying himself, worried about his losses when he's standing knee deep in blood soaked ground. See, beloved, we, we cannot have the perpetrators of injustice centering themselves in conversations about the redress of injustice. We, we can't have the, the ones who perpetrate the crime sort of saying, oh, ah, no, that's too much. How about this? That's too much. No, no, no. They don't get to set those terms. Greg, what, how would you respond? Um, well, going back to one thing you said, you, you can, and this is going to lead into other parts. We're going to get pick up on this in a little bit. You are real. You can only be like responsible for what you do, what you do, and what I think that's the the irony of of what he's talking about is he's applying Cain and Abel to supposed white supremacy and systemic injustice in our land today. Um, and so that means if, if, if what he's saying is true, and I don't think it is, then you are guilty of the black people who were killed because you're white and you share in a system of white supremacy. And if you're not seeking to overturn that, then you're supporting it. And therefore, in some way, you are guilty of the murder of anyone who is unjustly taken, whose life is unjustly taken. The problem with that is, is Cain directly killed Abel, directly, um, and see, here's the thing. He couldn't pay Abel back. Abel was dead. So, I mean, you just look at the facts of, of, of the story, and it doesn't line up. Um, it, it just doesn't line up. And again, the assumption there, you know, it's a modern way of saying this. It's like, you know, tell, tell me I'm an unbeliever without telling me I'm an unbeliever is basically what he did. Um, if you're speaking with the voice of Cain, you're speaking with the voice of a murderer um, and the one whom, as Mark said, is, is representative of an unbeliever. So he's subtly implying that if you don't go along with what he's saying, then he could legitimately say you're an unbeliever because you have the same attitude Cain did. And again, that, that is taking Scripture um, and dealing with Scripture in a very imbalanced and unfaithful way to what the text is actually saying. You have to take an agenda and a framework ahead of time, come to that text, and then read that text in light of that framework in order to say what he's saying. You get rid of the framework and you let the text stand on its own, and it disappears what he said. It just absolutely disappears. Let, let's turn to Luke 19, because this is a story that gets used in these conversations. As you're turning there, so there were two pastors uh, Duke Kwan, who is a PCA pastor in D.C., and Greg Thompson, who was a former PCA pastor, uh, used to be in Charlottesville, Virginia. They wrote a book a few years ago called Reparations, and they argue at length for this very idea that Thabiti said it was one of the best books on the reparations. I think he said it was the best book on reparations. I think he said he had read. So Thabiti endorsed this book. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote, and it's on his website. It's, it takes, uh, it's a decent length essay, but it's really good. It's a great essay called Reparations, a Theological Review. As you know, Kevin DeYoung is not some sort of inflamed, like inflammatory sort of crazy person. He's a very calm, mild-mannered guy in the way he speaks, but he does a great job, mm -hmm. I think in a very calm, humble way, just dismantling their argument piece by piece as he walks through. So th this is really worth uh, reading. But one of the key stories that is used by a lot of people on this topic is the story of Zacchaeus. The wee little man. We should not sing that song right now, should we? Uh, <laughs> a wee little man was he. Okay, I'm going to stop. Um, the sycamore tree is in the text, by the way. It is there. So let's read the story real quick. It's actually it's a pretty short uh, story. Greg, can you read uh, verses 1 through 10 of Luke 19? Yeah, Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was 
But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, Greg, there it is. Reparations is in the Bible because there it was. He, he stole from these people as a tax collector, exploiting people. And then what did he do? He paid it back. He paid it back fourfold. That is, that's reparations, right? So, Greg, how would you respond to that kind of a take on this uh, teaching, a form of reparations? Um, man, there's a lot to say. But when, when we say this is, in, this is one of the key texts, this is one of the key texts. I've heard numerous people say it. Uh, Eric Mason has said this. I think Thabiti's referenced it. Duke Kwan, Greg Thompson, yep. um, in their book, Reparations, this is one of the key texts for them. Um, and so it's one of these things, guys, when, when you're dealing with Scripture on an issue like this, and people have like their big, what we call clobber text, like, man, if, you know, they, they just have certain texts that they almost want to beat you up with. Go to those texts, engage those texts. And if, if they're not using it right, then what does that start to do to their system? It starts to dismantle it from the inside out because they're, they're, they're weaving their thinking um, on this. They're weaving it together based on the fact they think they're interpreting this text rightly. And so if we start to dismantle their interpretations and their interpretations don't hold up to what the texts are saying, then the system just collapses. Um, and so here we've got Zacchaeus, um, the chief tax collector, he was rich. You know tax collectors in this time uh, were basically considered the worst sort of traitor to Israel because they're working for Rome. And so they're working for a foreign uh, power that has, that has enslaved and has power over Israel. Um, and not only are they working for them, they're collecting taxes for them. And not only are they collecting taxes for them, they're taking a lot more on the side. So it's not just they're collecting what Rome says, they're getting more and more and more and demanding more from their own countrymen. And so tax collectors are like the scum of the earth, the bottom of the barrel, the worst of the worst. If anybody is outside the kingdom, if anyone is, is, has no chance of grace, no chance of salvation, it's a tax collector. Okay, And so keep that in mind. And so here's Zacchaeus. He wants to see Jesus. He meets Jesus. And what does Jesus do for him? He changes him. I mean, he, he says, Jesus at the end of this says, salvation has come to this house. So Zacchaeus gets saved. And what does he do? How was that demonstrated? He says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, half, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In the context, at a simple, plain reading, who is Zacchaeus restoring anything to? The people the he himself personally defrauded. Okay? The people he himself personally defrauded. He is not paying back um, other people who were defrauded by other tax collectors. He's paying back the people he himself defrauded. Okay? Think about also in terms of the poor. Is he going to go all over the world and give 50% of everything he owns to the poor everywhere in the world? No, probably the poor he has opportunity to come in contact with. And so here's the other thing. The, the, the wokeness, the, the CRT-fueled mindset says, well, it's structurally bad. So if we're going to take that, then tax collecting is evil. And Zacchaeus should have stopped being a tax collector because that's systemic. It's part of a systemic problem. Tax collectors do this. Cross the board, apparently, so we got to get rid of tax collectors, right? No. What, is Jesus tell, what Does Jesus tell him to stop being a tax collector? No. When the tax collectors came to John the Baptist, exactly. what did he tell them? He just said, basically, only get what you're supposed to get and no more. He didn't say, let's be done with this infernal system of tax collecting. It's systemically horrible and oppressive. What about soldiers? Think about this, guys. Soldiers who came to John the Baptist, 
and I know I'm getting out of Luke 19, but I think it's relevant. Soldiers who came to John the Baptist, guess who they represented? Imperial Rome who conquered and oppressed everybody they wanted to. So it's easy to make a systemic argument here. It is. It's absolutely, well, it's systemic, okay? It's part of the oppressive system. What did John tell the soldiers to do? Um, Just don't be unjust. He didn't tell them to stop being soldiers. He said, don't exploit, um, where, where is I've that? I've got it right here. It's, it's 314. It, soldiers who asked him, and what shall we do? This is Luke 314. He said, John the Baptist said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He, yeah. he doesn't say leave the oppressive system or something, like, however you could hear yeah. it in today's language. And because <clears throat> some, some of the language that we hear is Jesus was a revolutionary and he, you know, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to tear down unjust oppressive systems. That's not what the Bible tells. That's what John the Baptist said. That's not what Jesus said. And so again, the only way you're going to see this, let's tear down these supposedly horribly oppressive systems is you've got to already have that framework in place. You've got to have those glasses on so that when you come to the text, oh, well, because they're doing this, it must mean they're part of this evil oppressive system that's got to go. But also, if that was the, the thrust of the New Testament, if that was the thrust of the Gospels, where, show me where one time they're trying to overthrow the oppressive Roman system and undo all these things that are in place. And that's not saying Rome didn't have its bad points because it absolutely did. It absolutely did. But the call of the New Testament is not to, well, if, if there's any form of, of whatever, we got to do away with everything because that means this horrible... You just don't see it there unless you assume it from the beginning. No, that, that's a good point. And it, it, at the end of the article, Kevin Young, his last line, let me get the sentence correct here. At the very end, Kevin Young writes this. He says, one, he talks about their vision of the future, and he says, it's one that ultimately depicts a future where, the, where white guilt never dies and where the reparations never end. And that's his conclusion. White guilt never dies. Reparations never end. And people said, oh, come on. Well, then this video comes out, and this is a guy who is not a nobody. He's involved with uh, Wheaton College, I believe. What's his name? His name is Daniel Yang uh, with the Send Institute, which is connected to NAM, North American Mission Board, and it's also connected to Wheaton College's Billy Graham Center with Ed Stetzer. This guy's not a nobody, the guy on the right. And listen to what he says here about reparations uh, never ending. Repairing disparities is an ongoing posture. How long do we have to do this? for as long as it takes. How long do we have to do this? Until Jesus comes. So how long do we have to do reparations? Until Jesus comes back. So Kevin DeYoung said, it's gonna never, if you buy into this premise, it's never gonna end. And then the people come out and go, yeah, that's right. We don't ever want it to end. Reparations go until Jesus comes back. So again, this is an actual spokesperson uh, making that comment. It's not just uh, an implication that Kevin DeYoung points out. And can I just, okay. I'm not trying to paint a doom and gloom picture. Maybe that's the way it feels right now. You're just like, man, this is depressing. I don't want it to feel depressing. But at the same time, I don't want you to, to miss how this is really impacting what they call like major evangelical places. So, okay, are you ready? I'm just gonna show you a couple quick clips. And these, these are kind of crazy. So this is Eric Mason. Again, a guy I used to endorse. 10 years ago, I would have endorsed his book on manhood, which I still have at my house. Uh, I liked Eric Mason 10 years ago. Now, I don't even know what has happened. He's, he's, gone, he's the one that wrote Woke Church. Now, just, I want you to hear, because this is hard to believe. This is at a Gospel Coalition event. This is at MLK 50 in 2018. He said this into a microphone, and to my knowledge, has never apologized for it. Listen to this. He's talking about uh, hiring African Americans in largely white spaces, and he says this. And which you try to cause racial reconciliation, like through hiring non-qualified African Americans to be the multi-ethnic engineers in your local churches. And you know they're not qualified because blacks haven't hired them. And, and, and it works against unity when you hire somebody that we're not feeling. And you're wondering why multi-ethnicity isn't happening at your church. It's because you have a person that's black on the outside, but Angloid on the inside. Okay, now you may have, there's two, two major problems with that last comment. I'm going to play it again because it's hard to believe he just said that. Listen to that again. And you're wondering why multi-ethnicity isn't happening at your church. It's because you have a person that's black on the outside, but angloid on the inside. Now, two big problems. I had to look up the word angloid. I'd never heard that word before. It is a racial slang derogatory term against white people. Like negroid. And like other words like that. So it's related to that word. 
Angloid means a, an ugly person of English ancestry. It's, it's a derogatory racial term for white people. He said this at a Gospel Coalition event through a microphone and never apologized. And I don't know that anyone ever really called him on it. That's problem number one. He used a racial term against white people and no one bats an eye because it's MLK 50 and everything. It's fine. Okay, that CRT, that can only happen in a world where everyone is going into the woke movement. Secondly, and I think even more troubling than the racial term, because you can get rid of the term and still have the bad doctrinal view. This is what he just said. It's a kind of what they call racial essentialism. It's the idea that there is an authentic white voice and there is an authentic black voice. There's an authentic white experience, an authentic black experience. And if Vody Bauckham speaks non-woke words, he's speaking as a black body but a white voice. That is an actual kind of racism. And you're saying you're not truly black because you're not woke. That's what he is saying. And so he says, listen, you don't want to hire somebody who rejects critical race theory and wokeness and all these things because it's going to look like um, it's a black body, but an, he's an angloid on the inside. So not only is there a racial term that's derogatory against people of English ancestry, which is majorly troubling, can you imagine if it had gone the other direction? Imagine a white person using a derogatory racial term against a black person in this context. That would be outrageous. People would burn the place down, and appropriately so. But when it goes the other way, why doesn't anyone call him on it? Second of all, Race essentialism is a terrible belief that there's an authentic black voice and to, to not embrace the woke view is to not be authentically black. Like they would say Virgil and Daryl and Vody and all these guys mm -hmm. are not authentically black because they don't embrace the woke church movement. So this is really going on. I mean, this is really out there and people really are expressing deeply troubling views on race. Thoughts on, and by the way, if you don't know, this is Paul Tripp's pastor. I love Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp's one of my favorite Christian writers. This is his pastor in Philadelphia. The, the problem with doing what he did is it's dismissal without engagement. Is if I can label you a certain way, I don't have to engage what you're saying. I can dismiss it, I can forget about it, and keep doing what I'm doing. That's actually a coward's way out because it re, it, it's refusing to actually engage ideas. It's refusing to engage people as individuals. He basically just denied the individuality of a lot of people who have the same color skin. They're not really individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a problem. Every person is an individual. Every person um, has a right to think for themselves, form their own conclusions based on, you know, all the factors that go into that. And so he's denying the individuality of, of people. And that is just a, a coward's way out of having an argument. Like he, he's avoiding the debate altogether by, well, they're just black on the outside, angloid on, on well, I, I don't have to deal with them. I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to, you know, they don't, but because I said that, they have nothing of value to ever add to this conversation. Do you hear the dehumanization in that? That is absolutely dehumanizing a large number of people. And if you hear anything from us, I hope you do not hear that. Like we want to engage people. I don't care what color skin they have. I don't care what position they come from. If they've got something that's having influence, let's look at it. Let's look at them. Let's engage them. Let's hear what they have to say. And if it lines up with the truth, that's great. If it doesn't line up with the truth, well, we'll show why that happens and why we should avoid it. But I'm not gonna treat them as less than human because that's exactly what he just did. And speaking of treating them as less than human, now I'm gonna go to Matt Chandler. And uh, again, 10 years ago, Matt Chandler was one of my favorite preachers. Uh, he has, he's been deeply influenced by Eric Mason, he's one of his close friends, so he's definitely gone into the woke movement, and he certainly has gone into woke thinking. Listen to his message from the same conference. This is MLK 50 in 2018. I'm going to show you three clips, if I have time, and all three of them are pretty troubling. The first clip is when he said he first started talking about this, the race issue in his church, and he was talking about it. He, he did a video on white privilege, and he was talking about it from the woke perspective, okay? Although he will deny that's what he's doing. That's clearly what he's doing. Listen to what he says happened when he first started preaching this way, which is using basically Marxist categories to talk mm -hmm. about race. That's not what he would say, but that's what he's doing. Listen to what happened when he first preached on the issue of these racial issues. And yet there were these inconsistencies around this topic that were confusing to me. And again, I'm not talking about fools. 300 fools left when we first broached the subject. And there, weren't, there wasn't any lament in our elder room about that, other than the normal lament that you lament concerning a fool. So when he started talking about white privilege and these kinds of things from the pulpit, 300 people left his church and he calls all of them fools. <laughs> 
That's what wokeness does to your thinking. It, when people go, this, 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 they probably didn't know it in, in 2016 what, what he was doing, but, by, but they probably smelled something's wrong with the way he's framing the race issue. He's not talking about this the right way. Something's not right. I'm out of here. And 300 people left. He said, we didn't, we didn't even weep for them. We, just, we got in the elder room. We're like, yeah, 300 fools left our church because they don't like what we're saying. Now let's look at the next clip here. This is at uh, 1943. A lot of this is going to hinge on relationships. And now I want to clarify something. I am not asking you to find the black person that agrees with you. If you couldn't tell, a woman in the audience yelled at the top of her lungs, hell yes, when he said that. It just let me. Agrees with you. But I'm not going to blame him for that. Let's keep listening. Becoming friends with the African-American that agrees with everything you say isn't helpful to you as a white evangelical and probably has that African-American trying to win approval or position. Wow. So let me translate. If you find an African-American and you hire him on your mostly, into a church that's mostly Caucasian-American and that person does not embrace the woke worldview, then what he says is that person is probably, he's, he's a black person trying to win approval or position. He said, probably. That, that is in and of itself a, so a racial stereotype. So, so again, th this is what wokeness does to your thinking. I, 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 I love, I have loved Matt Chandler for many years. I learned a lot from him 10, 15 years ago in Bible college. He was one of my favorite preachers. I recommended him. I've read his stuff. I, I've been a huge Matt Chandler fan up until the last, what, four, five, six, since 2018. And mm. this is the kind of stuff that he is saying. Greg, reflections on that comment. Well, like I said, that, that's just absolutely racist. Um, and I think this gets to another Another aspect of critical race theory is it assumes that it can, it can identify all the motives of someone's heart that they, that they themselves don't know. And if you say, <coughs> no, that's not true. Think about this. As Christians, we can make claims about people's minds and hearts if Scripture does. So we have an overarching perspective by which to speak about somebody. This movement, we said it, it's taking religious tones. We know your heart. And you are fundamentally sinful in this. You are fundamentally broken in this. And so it, if any black person anywhere wants to become a member of a more white church and they're not talking like him, well, you obviously are deficient as a black person. You're trying to win approval yeah. and position. And so it's assuming a motive that there's, you, how, how do you even begin to measure that? You just, it's, you assert it, you say it, and you move on because in, in, in situations like this, there's no, well, let me prove that to you with examples, with statistics. It's, no, that's just how it is. And hey, you know, it sound, it's an emotionally gripping narrative. So hey, let's just go with it. That, that's how it works. Okay, this is the last one. This one's the most famous of his whole message. You probably, if you've seen by what standard, you've seen this clip already. Listen to this. Oh, let, before I play it. So if you, re, if you listen in context, if you remember, the Village Church, his church used to have, multi, it was a multi-site church. They had a bunch of big campuses. And then they decided to stop, which was, an, I think, a mm -hmm. noble thing. So Matt Chandler's only pastoring one in-person church. And the other campuses are, you know, multi-million dollar buildings with thousands of people. And they're giving them to new lead pastors. Does that make sense? So they're finding new lead pastors, which I think was a good, I think mm -hmm. that was a wise thing to do. And when they were in the process, he hired a, they hired a firm. And he said, I want you to find me uh, an African-American man who can pastor one of these campus churches. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But listen to what he says here. And so one of the firms that's helping us find men said, let me ask you a question, Pastor Matt. If, if we find an Anglo eight and an African-American seven, which one do you want? I said, I want the African-American seven. And he said, what if we find an Anglo eight and an African-American six? And then I said, then give me the Anglo eight because the African-American six will look and feel to our people like the kind of tokenism that I'm preaching against. Um, I, I think it's phenomenal. If he, if he has an African-American pastor pastoring one of his churches, that's phenomenal. I got absolutely no problem with that. That would be great. I got no problem with that. Here's the problem. Do you hear the logic? If I have a less qualified African-American pastor, I will take him over a more qualified Caucasian-American pastor. Something is just deeply wrong with that way of thinking. 
If you're going to find one lead pastor for this campus church over here with 2,000 people, I want to find the best person you can find is who you want to put in there, regardless of skin color. If the person is African-American, awesome. If they're Asian-American, awesome. If they're white American, awesome. Hispanic American, awesome. I don't care what their skin color is. I just want to find someone who's going to be good at leading that church. And so to say, I'm going to pick a seven over an eight because of skin color, that's just, that, that's, that is a woke way of thinking rather than, I think, just a more of an impartial way of thinking. Well, right? who determines why a six would be bad? Why not a four or a three instead of a six? Right. How does, how does he know a six, as to use his language, how does he know a six isn't going to be almost as good as the seven? That, that, the way he's measuring the worth of humanity should be appalling to us. It should be absolutely appalling to us. That is devaluing every single person he's talking about, white, black, whatever. Like that is, again, it goes back to the D. You can be commodified and monetized and measured in these simplistic ways. And that, that is, if, if that does not move us, we have, our moral compass is horribly broken. We're out of time. We're over time. But let me just close with this uh, so we don't end on a note of despair because I know this is like, wow, this could be discouraging when you see how prevalent it is. I will say, I, I am encouraged that a lot of people are, waking up to wokeness, right? A lot of people are waking up to the, how, how real this is and how pervasive it is. And there's been a good counter turn in the evangelical world right now. There's a lot of people who are strong voices pushing the other direction right now. And I'm very encouraged, actually. I would say 2018, 19, 20 was maybe my most discouraging time. And I feel like now there's a, some people are really waking up to the dangers. And I think there's a, there's a turn in a new direction for a lot of yeah. people. So I'm encouraged by that. Um, one last thing um, in, in light of that. Beware of folks who were promoting this and are now are acting like it doesn't matter or wasn't a big deal. And I'm going to say this because I feel like I have to. The Gospel Coalition is one of the worst hypocrites on this of, anybody, of any group I've seen. Um, they were all about the BD and all of this. They did not give balanced perspectives on this. Kevin DeYoung would be about the only one they do, but he was probably one to three to four. And um, now they're acting like, oh, you know, we're, you know, we, oh, we're not really woke. And it's Beware of people like that who want to say, well, now that's over and done. Let's just, you know, water. It's not water under the bridge. Like you don't just forget this um, if someone was promoting error and division. Okay, I'm not saying don't go to the Gospel Coalition. They still have some good stuff on there. They really do. But just beware on social justice and race. They are not going to be helpful to you. 100%. 100%. Let me, let me say that. We're way over time. Uh, Gospel Coalition is a great website for searching all kinds of different topics mm-hmm. and issues. I, I use it regularly, yeah, but on this issue, it's not necessarily the go-to place, uh, and I think that that's been true for a number of years now. All right, let me, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, helping us work through this. I think it is really important to see what is really out there. I think it is really important to know what is being taught by very well-known evangelical leaders today. And uh, God, I pray that you would give us as a church discernment, that we would not be mean-spirited, but that we would be truthful and that we would be clear and that we would not buy into some of these false belief systems that are really moving people into another system of thought. I'm not calling all these pastors false Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that there is a tug here that pulls us in, in, a, in a faulty direction that is significant. So I pray that you would guard our church from that. Help us to be gracious, loving, truthful, and uh, I pray you'd be honored. And I pray for the upcoming service that you'd be honored there as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.